how can we be sure that we will stand right before God? Our study leader, Dave Wurtson, begins a study of a New Testament book that specifically answers that question. The book is called Romans, and right at the beginning, we discover an ironic twist. The book is written by one of the most passionate Orthodox Jews of the first century. Last Saturday night, I didn't have to preach. And about 9 o'clock, I was in my easy chair. I tipped it back. I said, man, this is awesome. I don't have to get ready. I don't have to be worried about what I'm going to say in the morning. And my telephone rang. And the person on the other end said, uh, do you know that Laura Fincher's dad is in intensive care? And I think they're at Charlton. And uh, so I kind of put two and two together. Yeah, it was Charlton. I had to jump out of that chair where I was half falling asleep. And suddenly as I was driving up there, I was very much awake. And I went to the fourth floor of Charlton like I have many times. And when I came in, Laura Fincher's family was gathered together. And a lot of friends that he had worked with, a lot of friends from their home church at Hillcrest Baptist, they had just come out because they were trying to revive him, just like you see on all the emergency TV shows. They get those paddles, and they do everything they can and give them the shots, and those of you that are medical people know what's going on. And they had come out, and they were trying to revive him. And as they were doing that, somebody came out and said, we got his heart going. And, man, I remember thinking, praise the Lord. He's going to be able to live a little bit longer, be able to bring great joy to Stephanie and to Michael, his grandkids and his only daughter, Laura, and we just breathed a sigh of relief. You ever been in situations like that? You breathe out, and boy, this is good news, and you start to rest a little bit. Just in a minute after they gave us the news, the social worker came out again, and this time she said, he's gone. No matter how many times that I get those words, you just never get over it. It just, being in the hospital, in fact, I hate the fourth floor of Charleston, to be honest with you. I just have had not very good experience. I'm not saying anything against the fourth floor. I've had great medical care. But in my own life experience, I've often been there when someone was gone. But the incredible thing is that Laura shared that Hal was able to talk right up to the end. He was a gifted mouth for sales and for the Lord Jesus and for greeting. And an amazing thing is even when he was in cardiac arrest... And they were getting ready to try to get him going again and get that heart to respond. He was able to talk. The last thing he told Laura, and James was there, and Stephanie was there, Michael was on the way, and his wife Mary, he said, Bye, y'all. Good Texan. Bye, y'all. And if I don't see you here, I'll see you in heaven. How many of you would like to have a dad where the very last thing he tells you is, bye, y'all. If I don't see you here, I'm going to see you in heaven. Isn't that incredible? So, by the way, if you are a daddy, be sure to tell your kids your testimony and about how you came to know Christ. And I often challenge you to do that. But this is what I want you to think about this morning. Just think about this. How do we know for sure that uh, Hal's going to land on the other side? You hear what I just said? How do you know for sure you're going to land safe on the other side? What hit me, is to be honest with you, because we're in a Texas culture, almost everybody would say they're going to land safe on the other side. Have you noticed that? How many of you have had conversations with people and they're going to land safe on the other side? In fact, I've gone to very few funerals where they say, well, this guy's in hell, he's burning in hell, and that's not a really good thing to do. 
And I think that we do have to say that the Lord, the final judge, in fact, we're going to talk about that in the book of Romans. And this is one of the experiments that I'd like you to try. I'd like you to test that idea about what people think is going to happen on the other side and how they land safe. In fact, the book of Romans is going to answer the question, how can you be sure that you're right before God in the end? Right before God in the end is what the book of Romans is about. I want you to start asking your friends, and some of you might have already started doing it, but I'd like you to start asking your friends, how do you think you can stand right before God? How do you think you can stand right before God? So write it down if you can't remember too well. I want you to start asking your friends at work, asking your fellow students. I'm just really interested. How do you feel that you can stand right before God in the end? And I've started doing that. I asked some of my friends and acquaintances this week. And I'm going to give you some of my early answers, and we can keep adding as a church family the different answers we get to that. A first group that I talked to, about three people that are good friends of mine, through the years, they said, well, Dave, I, just, I basically think you, you try to be good. You know, you try to be good. I, I'm trying to live a good life. I, I really think that's what everybody needs to do. They need to try to be good. And then they went and said, you know, I, I don't really think anyone can know that they're right before God. Because I'm trying to be good, but how do I know how good I'll be? And they were very honest about that. But their basic idea was, and I talked to some other people. I got this answer very commonly. It's kind of the idea that we really think that there's going to be a time when whatever God is out there is going to have a scale. He put all the good things that I've done in my life on one side of the scale, all the bad things I've done on the other side of the scale, and boy, am I, it's like taking an exam at school. Man, I hope I pass that one. And that's where they're at, okay? And then another response I had from some of my friends was, no one can know that. And another response that I had was, I really think, and this is an amazing one to me, I think everybody has their own way. I think what's important to stand right before God is everyone has their own feelings about it. In fact, Bob and I were talking with a a roofer friend of mine, and that was, you know, he had a lot of questions. We were trying to get across to him, man, all the questions that you're raising at this breakfast table, that's what we talk about on Sunday morning, so why don't you come and gather with us? So pray that he will. But I basically got, and I've known him for a long time, he basically had the idea, people have different feelings about that. What I asked him, I said, let's suppose that Mary and I, and we did build our own house, let's suppose that the raptors are up there, if we said to you, we're going to kind of follow our feelings and our own intuitive ideas about how to put a roof on this house. How do you think we'll do? And he laughed. He said, that's crazy. I said, do you really think that I could intuitively learn to roof the house and be as good a roofer as you? He said, oh, no. But, you know, this is what I want you to stop and think of. Most of your friends, most people that you know, when it comes not to roofing their house, all you need to do is if you don't do that right, you'll just get rain in your house and you'll have to have the insurance. State Farm will have to do their thing. But, you know, every one of you, the law of averages that, Every one of you is going to have to make that journey someday. Gone to the other side. Hans is there. Al Bakum is there. Tommy Hobson is there. My dad is there. My mom is there. Whatever is on the other side. How many of you have lost a friend in this room? Anybody here lost a friend? Almost all of you. How many, how many of you have lost a dad or a mom? How many of you have lost brothers and sisters? So this other side thing isn't just out there somewhere. 
How do you know that you're going to stand right before God? If you open up to the book of Romans, the book of Romans is the book in the New Testament that for 16 chapters, someone that actually knows something about the other side is going to talk to us very honestly about how we can stand right before God. In fact, strangely, there's an interesting twist on this. Jewish people, for example, have their way to get to God. Jewish people follow Moses, and they listen to what Moses said, and they wear kind of funny hats on the back of their head, and they eat special kinds of food. And the Jews have their way to get right with God. And it's a very powerful, very great traditional way. As you turn to Romans chapter 1, the very first thing that just hits me right in the face as we think about, well, who has the right to tell me? Who's the authority that I can trust? The very first thing I want you to really think about as we begin the book of Romans is, who should you trust to tell you about how to get right and make sure you're right before God on the other side? And I highlighted that you wouldn't even roof your house without having an expert that has experience to tell you how to do it. But almost all of your friends have the idea that when it comes to spiritual things, when it comes to the most important questions, like where am I going to spend eternity, we're all experts. Talk to your friends and don't just pour the gospel into them. Don't just jump in and pour your belief. I want you as a church family to listen, to listen to what your friends are really believing about how you get right before God. And what I want you to start to be thinking of is why this letter is so important. Because right at the very beginning, when we raise the issue of, well, who can we trust? We're going to be faced with a person who was a very orthodox, trained, zealous Jewish man. Right away, as I begin Romans, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, I'm hit right in the face with a real weird irony. And it starts to deal right away with the idea, well, Jews have their law way to go to heaven. Christians have their Jesus way. And everyone is going to land safe. Well, the one that has had the most influence down through the centuries is a Jew that was very trained in Judaism. And he begins, interesting enough, he begins with his Roman name. And by the way, you probably heard Saul's name was changed to Paul. That's probably not true. Probably his name was always Paul Saul because he was a Roman citizen. In fact, there's another name that I don't know what it is, but Paul, when we get to heaven, we're going to find out had another name because Roman citizens have three names. And Paul and Saul are just probably two of those names. And Paulus is a very Roman name, and Saul is a very Jewish name. So it kind of brought together his life because even as a boy, he was raised in Troas, and he was raised in the Roman culture, because he was a Roman citizen. But his parents sent him to study in Jerusalem, which was the heartbeat of real Orthodox Phariseeism. So whatever you believe about this book, as we go through it, I want you all to understand that even secular scholars believe this person was Jewish that's writing this book. So you need to stop and think about that as he's going through it. In fact, one of his big concerns that we're going to find that we need to try to understand why it was such a big issue is he's going to wrestle later on in the book, why didn't my own Jewish people respond in mass to Jesus as the Messiah? So that's one of the questions we'll raise. The incredible thing is I think about, should I trust Paul? 
is he tells me that he's now become a servant of God. You could literally say that he's saying, I'm a slave of God. As a Jewish person, we think of the idea of being a servant or a slave as being a very lowly thing, and that's part of this here in Romans, that he tells me he's a servant of God. But for a Jewish person, the phrase servant of God didn't just picture like in Roman circles, they would think of a humble, obedient slave that did his master's bidding. But in Jewish circles that Paul was raised in, the phrase servant of God was used, for example, of a man like Moses. He was a servant of God. And they wouldn't be thinking, they would be thinking he's humble before God, he's gentle before God, he's, he's submissive to God. But they would also think that he's become a servant of God to become a mouthpiece of God to me among the Jewish people. Another way that the Old Testament uses the phrase the servant of God is of a prophet like Isaiah or a Jeremiah. Like Jeremiah, in the beginning of Jeremiah, it reads about his call and how he's pulled into becoming a, a mouthpiece for God. And one of the ways you would refer to a prophet like Jeremiah or Isaiah as a servant of God. As we open this letter, what I want you to realize, why we're going to do what we're going to do is that the early Roman church, probably about 57, 58 AD, just about 23, 24 years or so, after Jesus died on the cross and rose again, in the capital of the ancient Roman Empire, a group of believers like yourselves, and I don't know whether they were meeting in houses, I don't know whether they were meeting in, in like maybe teaching centers like the school of Tyrannus, like Paul taught in that in some of his missionary journeys. I don't know whether they met in a Jewish synagogue and began there. I don't know where they met, which gives us a lot of creativity on where we can talk about Jesus. But I do know that throughout the city of Rome, when Paul wrote this letter, that there's already groups of believers that are meeting all over the city. And one of the things they did is they opened up this parchment. When you open this book, historically, this goes right back to the first century. And what you're doing is joining with believers like yourself that for 2,000 years have been opening this book. That's why we're going to do what we're going to be doing the next several weeks as we study this book. And I want you to think like that. What was it like to be a young believer, and you begin to open this book, and they're raising these issues. Can I trust Paul? You know, what made the difference in his life? And one of the things they would think about when he said that I'm a servant of Christ Jesus is that Paul took the phrase in Judaism that was usually used of a servant of God, but he said he was the servant of Christ Jesus, which right away puts this man Jesus up on the level with God. Here's a Jew that somehow now believes that Jesus is the Messiah. We use the word Christ. And he's also the Savior, uses the word Jesus. But he's also using a phrase that every Jew would say, servant of God. And Paul says, not servant of God, but servant of the Messiah, the Savior, Jesus. So that enters into my credibility. I want you to realize that. That enters in to why I'm going to listen to what Paul said. One of the things I'd like you to do with your unbelieving friends is I'd like you to start out by sharing with them. One of the things I would pray over the next several weeks that I'll give you things that will help you in conversations with your unbelieving friends because that's what I really want you to do. I want you to go out into your school, into your marketplace, because that's how the early church in Rome that read this letter 
just became the most influential power in the city eventually. In fact, earlier, not in 56, but in the 40s, Christianity had already become so powerful that there was a riot in the city over Christos because some of the elite Romans were already believing in this Jesus. And Claudius, the Roman emperor, threw all of them out of the city temporarily for a short period of time because of the uproar they're having. So that's the kind of impact that they were having throughout this empire, the ancient Roman Empire. So we want to think about what did they feel? How did they act as they were reading this book? And then he says, called to be an apostle. Now, apostle means many things. Like, I've met apostles in my own life. And usually they're associated with churches that have very authoritative leaders. And you're supposed to do everything they said. Anybody ever heard of those kind of apostles? When I was a little kid, there was pastors in Philadelphia that said they were God's apostle. In fact, one guy even said he was God himself. But on a little bit lower level, the idea of apostle was, I'm this one of these unique people. So when you talk to your unbelieving friends about the word apostle, that would be a good question. What do you think when you think of an apostle? And I want you to see what it meant in the first century. As Paul read this letter, it says, called to be an apostle. The word apostle literally meant in Paul's circles, it would be used in a general way for someone that's sent on a mission. For example, like Julius Caesar could take his general and say, I want you to be my apostle and go to Britain and represent me among the heathen tribes that are up there and represent the power of the Roman Empire, those barbarians up there. And he would be an apostle, would be an emissary, a sent one. In the New Testament, sometimes the word is used like that, but it's also used of the 12, the 12 disciples. And that becomes a very special way to use it. One of the special things about the 12, for example, in Acts chapter 1, as you think of an apostle called to be an apostle, Judas has committed suicide, so they need to complete the 12, and they're having a big debate about who should be the 12th man, not at A&M, but in the original foundational disciples. They have their debate about this, but they deal specially. They need to be someone that started out with the Lord Jesus at his baptism, at least that early, Jesus is baptized before John, and then all the way through to his resurrection, that they were eyewitnesses of, of his earthly life, his death, and his crucifixion. So the 12 became witnesses of that, especially the resurrection. The Apostle Paul includes himself in that group. In fact, as he talks about, you know, like 1 Corinthians 15, he talked about the apostles. He says, I was like one that was born a little bit late. Because the Apostle Paul, as far as we know, I'm sure because he lived in Jerusalem, he, he knew of the events going on, but he doesn't communicate in his letters that he was a disciple of Jesus at all during his earthly ministry, and there's no evidence that he had this personal relationship with Jesus. In fact, he was an enemy of Jesus. But I think it would be logical. Jerusalem's not that big a city. It would be logical that the Apostle Paul was knowing what was going on because very soon after Jesus claimed to have risen from the dead, people are talking about that, and Paul becomes the chief agent to snuff out this new movement. But he refers to himself when he sees Christ on the Damascus Road. He says, I saw the resurrected Christ. And I responded to him. And in his testimony, he says that, that right away in that early period of him seeing the resurrected Christ, 
that the Lord told him, you're going to be my apostle to the Gentile people. Your primary mission is going to be to take the gospel to non-Jews, which is another weird thing. Why would God take a committed Jewish Pharisee, and he's got all the in things with his own people, why would he send them into Gentile territory? So we need to be thinking about the specialness of the call of God and how the Lord sometimes uses people to go across people groups. And we, we need to think about the anointing of the Spirit on our life to reach out to people. But I want you to know in the book of Romans, Paul doesn't know the Roman church personally, never been there. But one of the things he's laying out at the very beginning is, I am one of the official foundational people that the Lord God of heaven has called to become the authoritative spokesman to answer questions like, how can you stand right before God? So why I'm telling you Paul's letter is that he's a man ordained by God, at least he's claiming that, and you can ask yourself as you go through the book whether or not it's true or not, that he's saying, I saw the resurrected Christ, and that resurrected Christ and his father called me to be one of these foundational apostles. And all the New Testament books that we have, including Romans, comes from those foundational apostles. And that's how it got into our New Testament. So you'll understand that. The apostle goes on and explains a little bit that he was set apart for the good news, God's good news. So he's telling me right away, I'm an official emissary of the Lord God of heaven. But he tells me right away what his mission is. What is the apostle Paul's mission? He is to declare, he's been set apart to tell others the good news about God. I would expect him to say the gospel of Jesus, wouldn't you? That would be more normal for me. In fact, maybe in your own personal life, how many of you feel that you have a close relationship with Jesus, but you're not so sure about a relationship with your Father, God the Father? I want you to think about that because Romans is going to teach us right here at the beginning that the good news is God's good news. So it's rooted in God the Father. We're going to find God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all you're not in this good news, but your forgiveness, forgiveness that flowed at Calvary. The, Jesus said, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me, which is a great mystery. But I want you to know that that plan of his son dying on the cross flows from the eternal heart of God the Father. As we go through this book, watch yourself so that you don't divide and think of God being harsh, God being vindictive, and not being involved in wanting to bring me good news. Because right at the beginning of the book, the gospel is the eternal God's good news. And in this particular verse, it's God the Father. Paul goes on and says the gospel, and now he's going to explain to us a little bit about the gospel. Look what he says. This good news was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son. A lot of kids, especially young people, will ask, why should I believe that Jesus is the only way? Because like my kids, when they went to UT, it was really in to believe anything about how you get right before God. What was totally politically wrong was to believe that you had the way. Anybody experience? How many of you have friends that that's kind of how they're responding? They love that you can have your way, but just don't tell me that your way is the way. Anybody face that? I want to share with you why I believe that this is God's good news. Through the book of Romans, you're going to see this. 
The Old Testament was his holy scriptures. And what he's telling you is that God promised the core beliefs of the good news that I'm going to share with you, God promised it in the Old Testament. Objectively, long before Jesus lived, the whole Old Testament, like I've often explained it to you, but I want to remind you again, it's an objective fact of history that the Old Testament Jewish scriptures, as you have sitting in your lap, was all there at least 200 years, 300 years before Jesus came. So you need to really get that down. That's objective history. Paul's going to take, in the book of Romans, a lot of verses from the Old Testament. So you don't have to say, well, what's he talking about? As we teach you this book, we're going to have large sections of the Old Testament, and the Apostle Paul will explain to us how that was God promising beforehand that his son would come, and that his son would die, and that his son would rise again from the dead. One of the reasons why I believe Jesus is the good news is that he lines up with this developing picture from the Old Testament. And we want to let that picture develop in the book of Romans. So that's one of the very first objective evidences that I have all the Old Testament scriptures and it points to the good news about Jesus. You need to ask yourself, do I believe that? As Paul develops that argument and I want you to be open, ask yourself, How is this working out? Is that really what the Old Testament was talking about? And that'll be a discussion that we'll have. It's regarding his son who adds to his human nature was a descendant of David. The Old Testament predicted that the Messiah would be from the line of David. But who through the spirit of holiness, now we have the third person that Trinity introduced. The spirit of holiness, which is an Old Testament way to refer to the Holy Spirit. He was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul's giving you another evidence of why he believes that he's got the good news. And you need to really think hard about this. The early church in Rome studied a book like this. They would read it, and this is how they thought. As they read this book, some of them were Jewish in the Roman church. And so they realized they had their Old Testament scripture. In fact, at this time, They don't even know, really, that Romans is going to be part of a new body that completes their sacred writings. So when Paul tells them the reason you need to trust in Jesus is because it was promised beforehand, they would go digging through their Old Testament to figure it out why Paul would say that. The second thing that the early church would do is Jesus rose again from the dead. Again this week, early this week, and it hit me again. I said, oh, no, here we go again. John Cameron, who did Titanic, got a newscast with another filmmaker in New York City, my hometown, all the cameras there, and they showed them a box. And on this box, it's called an ossuary, and what you would do in the ancient world in Israel, you would put the body in a slab, you would let it decay, then you would take those bones after the flesh and everything was decayed, you would then take it off the shelf and put those bones in a little box. And so in 1980, not just recently, but in 1980, they found these boxes. And there's lots of boxes that they found. John Cameron, who did Titanic, is saying, these are the bones, this is the remains of Jesus, because it says Jesus, the son of Joseph. And it also has Mary, 
And then there's a girl, Miriam, which they hold as Mary Magdalene. They jump to that conclusion. And then they have a boy named Judah. Now, when I first heard that, because part of my background is, I believe that we need to be open. Like in science, as a chemist, I had to take objective facts. And if it really happened, and I really knew that it happened in a certain chemical experiment, I'd have to change my belief system. Does that make sense? So what gave me the thud is, did they really find the remains of Jesus? Now, in my head, I know they couldn't because I believe the witness of John and I believe the witness of Paul and I also have seen the power of Jesus to change lives. But at Rotary, a guy asked me, you know, what do you think about the bones of Jesus? And I told him, I said, if, if they really did find the remains of Jesus, I'm not preaching anymore. And he said, well, you're nuts. He said, because the spirit of Jesus is a lie. It's not just the spirit of Jesus that turned the early church on. Because in the first century, the ideas of spirits, everybody believed that. I can read Roman and Greek literature. They're filled with spirits everywhere. There's no big deal. It was totally accepted. Sure, after you die, you get out of this horrible physical body, and you're set free to live in the spirit. Everybody believed that. So what my friend was trying to say is, it didn't make a difference whether he rose again from the dead, because what happened was his disciples took the body of Jesus, and they put it on a shelf, and then when the body decayed, they buried it in a very rich Jerusalem tomb, and then they went all over the world and told everybody that Jesus had spiritually lived after he died, and isn't that great good news? And what I want to understand is that's not at all the good news of Scripture. And you need to think hard of how would you ever have generated a new church in Rome with that kind of a message? The truth of the matter is, back in 1980, the archaeologists that looked at that, the name Jesus in the first century was like the name Sam or David or Bob. So it's like saying we found a, a tomb in New York with Bob on it and Marilyn on it. And so we assume this has to be the Bob and Marilyn Stanberry. Another way to illustrate it, it's like going to New York and finding a tomb that has George on it and Laura. It's got to be President Bush. Now, when you watch that documentary like millions of Americans will do, when a cameraman showed you this ancient literature and showed you those inscriptions and you can't read it, tons of your friends will say, sure, that's true. What I want to challenge you to do is I want you to be a person that really gets to know what's real. I want you to, to learn to investigate things. I want you not just to look at images and jump to conclusions, and I want you to think really hard. The reason we're going to take of this bread it's because the Apostle Paul actually saw Jesus alive. And the associates that he went down to Jerusalem and talked together with, those associates, like John and Peter, that became very close friends of the Apostle Paul, actually saw grave clothes lying empty on the shelf. And the early church, what they really believed is that this Jesus that was promised in the Old Testament that died on the cross for our sins and that rose again, they really, really believed 
with all their hearts that he didn't just rise to bring a new spirit of, of renewal and a spirit of moral purity and a spirit of loving the poor. What turned them on in the first century is Jesus really was the bread of life because he was at the right hand of God alive. And he had a new body that would never, never be destroyed. And I believe that with all my heart. What I want you to do as you go through the book of Romans, start looking at the questions that Romans raises. I want you to start interacting with your friends. Like if I were to ask you, how many of you have gotten in conversation with your friend this week about God's good news? The Apostle Paul said that his life was set apart for this good news. So one of the things that I really want to recommit myself this morning is that my life would be set apart to share the good news. Why is that important? When we went to Hal's funeral, James Fincher wrote a really neat piece about his father-in-law. And he told us about him being part of the Army Air Corps in World War II. He told us about Hal being a really good, effective salesman in business. He talked about how he loved him as a son-in-law. But you know what else James said? He sometimes said some things racially that weren't exactly on. So if you're an African-American, for example, and you heard Hal speak, you might say, he's not a right man. He's not a good man. Because he's really hurting me. And he doesn't understand what I've come through. And he has real blindness there. James went on and shared in this piece about the real Hal that there were some other things that didn't line up. Now, how many of you are sitting there going, I've done that. In fact, if I were to say on every one of you that I could take all the actions of your life and put them up here on these two screens, your thoughts, your actions, how many of you want your actions up on those screens? And how many of you want to trust all your eternity on the fact that your good is going to outweigh your bad? So what have you found out that this represents a real person that conquered death? And what the book of Romans is going to tell us, what James went on to emphasize is that his father-in-law, Hal, had come to the moment in his life where he believed that Jesus was God's son and that he died on the cross so that he could forgive him for some of those racial slurs and he could forgive him for times when he might be very angry and other sins that only he knew and he could come just as he was without one plea but that Jesus died, shed his blood for him. And that's the real reason, based upon the authority of the Apostle Paul, based upon a book like Romans that answers the question, how do you know you're going to stand right before God? How made the decision? That's what I'm going to depend upon. And what a marvelous thing it is for Hal to be able to say to his only daughter, I'm going to see you on the other side. But it wasn't what most of your friends think. Hal wasn't saying, I've been a pretty good guy. What he was saying is, Jesus came into my life, the resurrected Jesus. And all of my comments for eternity is resting in him. Amen? And the Roman church, when they, when they read the book of Romans, and they began to study just the way we did today, they would be gripped in their heart. Jesus really did rise again from the dead. Jesus really did, after he died on the cross, 
conquer my greatest enemy. And we believe that through his spirit, that spirit of holiness that raised Jesus from the dead, that spirit of holiness is going to powerfully work on us as we go out into our marketplace this week to touch lives for Jesus. For more information on materials available through Truth Encounter, please write to us at Truth Encounter, Box 580, Midlothian, Texas, 76065, or you can contact us on the web at www.truthencounter.com. Our telephone number is 1-888-668-7884.